ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. Does sport unite us or divide us? A rollicking debate on big ideas today. Hi, Natasha Mitchell joining you from Nam or Melbourne, a city which really connects the arts and sport in quite unusual ways, I have to say. You don't have to be team sport or team arts here. You can be both and sometimes at the same time. I go to this annual RecLink charity football game, which brings together community radio stations and rock musicians on opposing teams and then everyone rocks on out at a gig afterwards. It's a total joy. Perhaps you are a member of a local sporting club, which makes you feel very connected to your community. Sport can certainly be divisive too, can't it? At school, it can be alienating if you're not a sporty kid. And Australia funds and obsesses over sport when other cultural activities lose out. A show of hands at the start of this event from the Australian Academy of Social Sciences suggests the audience were on the side of sport uniting us. But with the toss of a coin, we're starting with sociologist Emeritus Professor David Rowe, who doesn't agree at all. It's going to be a bit uphill, I think, tonight. (laughs) I'm hoping that my reception tonight will be a little warmer than when, in 2006, as an innocent in wicked Sydney, recently arrived from Newcastle, I gave the eighth annual Tom Brock Lecture, organised by the Australian Society for Sports History, in the rather different surroundings of the New South Wales Leagues Club in (laughs) Phillips Street. For some reason, my talk, entitled The Stuff of Dreams or the Dream Stuffed, Rugby League, media empires, sex scandals and global plays was not universally well received that night. It is though an urban myth, albeit one generated by me, that I required a police escort when exiting the building. Instead, I had revered sports journalist Ian Head and renowned author Tom Keneally for protection. Certainly, I should not be held responsible for the club's closure and sale to a developer (laughs) just nine years later. This was a case of divisive gentrification in the real estate market, triumphing over unifying old-school sport. This is but one among many examples when critiques of sporting mythologies have been at variance with personal popularity. Sporting affiliations are especially sensitive territory. For example, I pondered whether I should play the probable pantomime patsy in this place by reaffirming my support of England's lionesses during the recent FIFA Women's World Cup. That revelation alone may well have lost me this debate, if I haven't lost it already. But as Andrew would no doubt agree, in sport, politics and life, one must be bold, if not, on occasion, foolhardy. But tonight, we are all meant to be social scientists first and sport fans second. I am, in general terms, an aficionado of some sports and people, and a one-time player of middling ability in some so-called gender-appropriate sports. Growing up as Natbirth nominated male in the second half of the last century, it was ill-advised to be anything else but sports smart. Then, being halfway competent in and knowledgeable about contact sports in particular meant that my hegemonic masculinity, a concept famously proposed by Australian sociologist Raymond Connell, went relatively unchallenged. This early lesson in life ensured an appreciation that sport has traditionally divided us in one key respect, gender. As a social and cultural institution, sport was founded on and sustained by gender inequality with ramifications far beyond that arena. Sport was an anointed space where men could assert superiority over women. It naturalised men's claim to physiological advantage and entitlement to homosocial congregation. Apart from a few individual, predominantly middle-class non-contact sports like tennis and golf, 
women found little room for professional advancement in sport. Even in such instances, the men's version was generally deemed to be more exciting and of higher quality, and so more watchable and saleable. For example, why is the men's final always the climax of Grand Slam tennis tournaments? And why have the riches of Saudi-backed live golf not yet been extended to women? Surely, though, there are signs of substantial progress towards gender um, equality in 21st century sport, especially as we bask in the afterglow of an astonishingly successful FIFA Women's World Cup hosted by Australia and Naturia New Zealand. Well, Forbes' 2023 list of the world's highest paid athletes contains only one woman, Serena Williams, at number 49. Having recently retired, it seems unlikely that she will return to the list, although the also-retired Roger Federer remains there at number nine. And as for the Women's World Cup, a stark reminder of sport's unequal gender order came when Spain's superb, though personally heartbreaking, victory over the Lionesses was immediately overshadowed by the Spanish football president, Luis Rubiales, grabbing his crotch in celebration and then forcibly kissing the lips of a player, Jenny Hermoso, he's supposed to be respectfully congratulating. This lamentable case brings me back to the central debate question. Does sport unite or divide us? Of course, the or could be replaced with and, meaning that the answer must be yes. Alternatively, in social sciences speak, I could return to the classic dialectical frame, thesis, antithesis, synthesis. In either case, sport both unites and divides in myriad ways. It is important, first, to acknowledge that it is a specific form of institutionalized physical culture that is not an endless rerun of an imaginary ancient Olympics, but a product of modernity. What we routinely call sport only emerged in the 19th century when folk games became regular, regulated physical contests with rules and even laws. As Alan Goodman influentially put it, this signaled a move from ritual to record and for Jean-Marie Brom constructed a prison of measured time. Sport became a compulsory part of the school curriculum and an important aspect of leisure, with the noble values of amateurism emphasising fair, honourable play. The ruthless pursuit of winning, and even worse, getting paid to play, created a deep divide within sporting culture. This split led to the succession of rugby league from rugby union, which after a period of shamateurism became fully professional itself. Today, with the development of what I call a vast media sports cultural complex in which staggering sums of money change hands and illiberal nations burnish their reputations by refining their sports washing techniques, the term amateur is commonly used as an insult. Sport is a sprawling enterprise that encompasses everything that happens in spaces from classrooms to boardrooms, parklands to cathedral stadia. It is increasingly difficult to think of all this as a singular phenomenon, although advocates of sport are prone to exaggerate its universality and to downplay its deficiencies. This is because sport and physical activity are often combined, as Andrew does in his book, <laughs> Fair Games, Lessons from Sport for a Fairer Society and a Stronger Economy. The problem with this merging of sport and almost any kind of movement is that a morning jog, stroll or swim get counted as sport, but that classification evacuates its structured competitive element, not to mention the remuneration of a minority. When my colleagues and I at Western Sydney University's Institute for Culture and Society surveyed a representative sample of adults as part of our Australian Research Council Australian Cultural Fields project, we found that 61.2% of Australian adults played no organised sport at all, 
and only 44.5% had watched sport live at a venue in the past 12 months. On the other hand, 84.9% had watched some sport live through the media, mostly television. So, if sport does in some sense unite us as an activity, it mainly involves watching it on screen. <laughs> sport participation also varies by gender, class, level of education, cultural background, location and age. Those are divisions. Such variable patterns of sportingness raise the thorny issue of who constitutes us and we. Andrew is quite confident about these categories, but after conducting another ARC research project, A Nation of Good Sports, question mark, in Greater Western Sydney, I am rather less so. I found that sport can be quite isolating in culturally diverse, demographically dynamic contexts, while, in contrast, it may also work as a conversational lubricant in helping to forge connections in the workplace between people of different origins. Sport can present barriers to people with backgrounds that make them feel isolated in alcocentric sport clubs while also presenting tantalising opportunities for gender norm resistance by girls from cultures that may disapprove of female athleticism. The point is that we tend to think of other people as being uncannily like us in multiple areas of life, including our experience of an orientation to sport. In my time as a social sciences researcher and scholar in this area, I have encountered people with wildly varying attitudes to sport. In academe, I found considerable snobbery regarding sport, often being told in imperious terms that it was all about bread and circuses, cheap populism and muscle-bound blockheads. One esteemed member of the Academy of the Social Sciences in Australia, who I will not name, told me, only half-jokingly, that the sociology of sport should be banned. <laughs> For others, their romantic attachment to sport as somehow transcending the mundane struggles of everyday life meant that critical analytical inquiry was only practised by professional killjoys without souls. A leading sports journalist called us gibbering academics, while sports historians of hagiographical bent discounted us as neo-Marxist malcontents. <laughs> so, in the academic and media worlds, sport has divided against itself. Such differences register throughout society, and not just regarding attitudes to sport, but in ways there are very many ways that it can be used. In community contexts and during what Diane and Katz in their book Media Events call high holidays of mass communication, like the Summer Olympics and the FIFA World Cup, sport has a potent unifying function at local and national levels, especially with regard to the latter. Even those who do not care much for sport get drawn into the spectacle because national media paper our cultural walls with it. But at such times, it is necessary to attend to the language of sport, both in media commentary, spectator talk and exchange between combatants. Too often, what is heard is less than edifying. Whole nations are stereotyped as robotic or volatile. Indigenous peoples represented as both mystically talented and feckless, and people of colour animalistic and lacking in qualities of leadership. Women are declared, as noted, to be inferior to men, and men disparaged as feminine or stigmatised as homosexual. Transgender and non-binary athletes are called cheats and freaks. Real or imputed disability is rendered as insult and so on. Now, I'm not, of course, claiming that most sport discourse is always so damaging and negative. There is considerable mutual respect and kindness in sport and progress within sport organisations, slow, albeit, and among sports people in ruling such hurtful language out of order. 
Take one example more or less at random. It is now eight years since ACT Senator David Pocock called out homophobic abuse on the field of play. Nor am I arguing that such attitudes are exclusive to or even overrepresented in sport. My argument is that sport is an especially effective vehicle for hostile language and, on occasion, violent behaviour, precisely because it is structured around competition and conflict. Andrew is quite right to say that sport at its best is beautiful to behold. But how often is it so? Sport at its most professional and esteemed has developed too much in ways that prize profit over persistence, forging a Faustian pact with gambling and performance-enhancing body-jeopardising substances, and is overly accommodating of the compulsively corrupt and the morally bankrupt. Yes. But I don't want to, be, to end on a depressing, downbeat note. <laughs> Sport today may be on balance more divisive than unifying, which I hope you will share. <laughs> But we need not abandon hope every time we enter a stadium or pass through a sport media portal. To return to our Australian cultural fields research, a striking finding was that women typically aged 35 and above in lower management, professional and intermediate occupations who had completed an undergraduate and often a postgraduate graduate degree in the humanities and social sciences outside the elite group of eight universities constituted the cultural taste cluster most indifferent and hostile to sport. <laughs> Based on stadium live attendance and media statistics and my very unscientific sample of conversations with such women during and after the 2023 FIFA Women's World Cup, Sport in Australia may have taken a sudden unifying term. More than once I heard that if only more elite sport were like this, then it would soon find a loyal new band of previously alienated adherents. The final lesson then is that sport can unite rather than divide us, but all it needs to do is reinvent its structures and practices, rediscover its ethical mission, and reimagine who are us. A societal success preferably achieved without accompanying heart palpitations induced by a penalty shootout. Thank you. Does sport unite us or divide us? So far, the sceptical view now in defence of sport comes the Assistant Minister for Competition, Charities and Treasury, Andrew Lee, not in his capacity as a poly, though. Here he is, well and truly, a sports fan. Let me start with a story. In 1945, Australian batsman Graham Williams strode onto the pitch at Lord's Cricket Ground in London. A former Sheffield Shield player, he'd only been released from a prisoner of war camp two weeks earlier, where he'd been held in captivity for four years. As Williams walked onto the Lords, he turned his head from side to side, taking in the scene, still struggling to believe where he was. Then the applause started. As one, the English crowd rose to its feet and clapped. It wasn't the sound of a crowd admiring a great sporting accomplishment. It was the noise of 30,000 people honouring an athlete. Recalling the moment decades later, one fellow cricketer said, I've heard people clapping at Lords many times, but this was applause with a difference. It was muffled and ongoing. Everybody stayed standing as he walked and continued this beautiful, hushed applause. I often think what a marvellous piece of music that kind of applause would make. Beethoven could have put it to something stunning. Sport can bring out our finest qualities. The people of Lithgow were so enamoured of sprinter Marjorie Jackson that they had built a cinder track for her to train on. They raised funds so that she could attend the 1952 Helsinki Olympics, where she won Australia's first ever women's athletic gold medals in the 200 and 100 metres. When Jackson returned home by train, the woman they named the Lithgow Flash could hear her fans cheering before she could even see the local station. At its best, sport embodies both achievement and egalitarianism. 
We admire athletes who perform new feats of strength, speed or dexterity. We prize the idea that what matters isn't their bank balances or their connections, but their hard work. In team sports, we want to see a tournament in which the last place team of one season starts the following year with a fighting chance of winning the trophy. This dual nature of sport has also provided memorable markers on Australia's reconciliation journey. The Indigenous cricket team that toured England in 1868. The success of Cathy Freeman in the 400 metres at the 2000 Sydney Olympics. Jonathan Thurston captaining the North Queensland Cowboys to their first NRL Premiership. Ash Barty becoming tennis's world number one in 2019. Many non-Indigenous Australians who grew up in rural areas say that their first friendships with First Nations people were forged on the playing field. Sport is a source of national and personal pride. Watch an international sporting competition and there's a reasonable chance that an Aussie will be in contention. But sport isn't purely an elite activity. For millions of Australians, participating in sport is integral to a good life. Whether it's a hit of tennis, a gym workout, or a dance session, exercise is part of a life well lived. As the father of three sons, my favourite moments with them is when we're physically active, cycling down a mountain, body surfing a wave, or just walking the dog. My wife Gwyneth and I both notice that after they've done some exercise, our boys are nicer people to be around. <laughs> Funnier, kinder, less inclined to squabble. And that's probably true of their parents as well. Yet the Australian economy hasn't produced the same kinds of gold medal winning performances and individual satisfaction. Productivity, the amount that each worker produces in an hour, is barely rising. The nation's biggest companies today are virtually identical to those that dominated the economy of the 1980s. Mega firms are merging like never before, while the new business startup rate has dropped. Unlike the egalitarian ethos that shapes our best sporting contests, the Australian economy is delivering an increasing share of the gains to a fortunate few. From 1975 to 2021, real wages grew 33% for the lowest paid, 55% for median earners and 81% for the highest paid. Australians now have fewer friends, join fewer organisations and are less likely to volunteer. The rise of inequality and the decline of community means that Australia is increasingly becoming a nation that values me over we. At a time when the social divides that separate Australians are wider than ever, sport can provide a common language and a shared experience. Many people who have migrated to Melbourne find that picking an AFL team is as essential as knowing where to catch a tram. In Townsville, rugby league plays a similar role. When floods hit the North Queensland town in 2019, no one was surprised to see Cowboys players helping evacuate stranded residents. Whether in the stadium or in front of the television, Australians are enthusiastic fans with a larrikin spirit. When a cricket match lags, a Mexican wave often begins to make its way around the ground, with spectators cajoling those in the members' stand who fail to leap to their feet. <laughs> On the day Australia won the America's Cup in 1983, Prime Minister Bob Hawke spontaneously declared a national holiday, declaring any boss who sacks anyone today for not turning up is a bum. During their commentary on the Sydney Olympics, comedy duo Roy and HG created an unofficial games mascot, Fatso the Fat-Ass Wombat, <laughs> which became so popular that a statue was built in Fatso's honour at Sydney Olympic Park. That willingness to challenge the dusty conventional wisdom isn't just vital in sport. It's fundamental to forging an economy where the quality of an idea matters more than the status of the person proposing it. Like many Australians, I'm a sporting tragic. In my case, I trace the passion back to my grandfather, Keith Lee, a Melbourne Methodist church minister who really liked running. To celebrate his 50th birthday, Keith ran from his home in Rosanna to Melbourne's northeast to Mount Dandenong to see his mum in an aged care home and then back again. The run took all day and because it was his 50th birthday, 
covered 50 miles. My father, Michael Lee, was also a marathon runner who grew up watching Ron Clark, Herb Elliott and John Landy. My favourite photo of my father and grandfather have them both lacing up their running shoes, big goofy grins on their faces. In my own case, I love starting the day with a run in the bush, smelling the eucalypts and listening to the kookaburras. I get pleasure from sweating hard and the joy from training with people who are quicker than me. While sport isn't life, it provides crucial life lessons. Training lays the groundwork for success. Stress is no excuse for bad behaviour. Respect your opponents. Everyone makes mistakes. It's how you deal with the mistakes that matters. Luck counts. Teams are greater than the sum of their parts. Win with dignity and lose with integrity. In sport, equal treatment is fundamental. Teams playing at an outdoor venue swap ends at half-time, so neither side gets the benefit of a tailwind. Martial arts fighters are matched by weight to ensure a fair fight. Amateur golf events and many professional horse races have a handicap system. In team sports, player drafts, salary caps and revenue sharing are imposed to ensure that no team monopolises a tournament. Sport isn't utopia, but for all its flaws, it has much to teach us about creating a fairer society and a stronger economy. When he was inducted into the Sports Australia Hall of Fame, Australia's greatest cricketer, Don Bradman, summed up his views on the relationship between success and decency. When considering the stature of an athlete, or for that matter, any person, Bradman said, I set great store on certain qualities which I believe to be essential in addition to skill. They are that the person conducts his or her life with dignity, with integrity, with courage, and perhaps most of all, with modesty. These virtues are totally compatible with pride, ambition, and competitiveness. Sport teaches us that we don't have to sacrifice egalitarianism and honour in pursuit of victory. And that is why sport unites Australia. <laughs> OK, for and against... Now, award-winning journalist and author Ginger Gorman will challenge her opponents, David Rowe and Andrew Lee, with some pointy questions. First, she's turning to Assistant Minister Andrew Lee. So you told a really beautiful story at the start of your speech, and it was very moving about batsman Graham Williams, and you claim sport can bring out our finest quality. So you argue sport makes society fairer and more egalitarian. So my question is, if that is the case, why are sports like soccer, AFL, rugby, I could go on and on, plagued with homophobia, transphobia, racism and gender equality? And there's plenty of other things I could add to that list as well. So, Ginger, sport isn't perfect, but there have been moments in which sport has led the national conversation. The FIFA Women's World Cup here was an important reminder of the success of women on the sporting fields. As the father of three little boys, I love watching them cheer on women's sports stars. Uh, the Taking the Knee movement uh, was an important part of the American and then global conversation around racism. And Ian Roberts coming out as an openly gay rugby league player in the 1990s gave a lot of gay and lesbian Australian teens the confidence that they could do likewise. So sport isn't utopia, but it has at key moments in our history provided a window into national debate and allowed us to become better versions of ourselves. Okay, I'm going to let David jump in in a moment, but there's a particular incident or series of incidents that's in my mind where you could argue it has also brought shame on our nation. In 2015, player Adam Goods relentlessly was booed by fans and, you know, some commentary suggests that led him to leave the AFL. And the other incident that comes to my mind is when AFL star Taylor Harris was relentlessly trolled and actually became quite afraid after she just simply was doing her job, doing an amazing kick. So is this really something that's uniting us or is that idealistic? 
So, Ginger, you can either focus on the abuse or you can focus on the reaction. And I think what's wonderful about the two examples you choose is how extraordinarily those two athletes responded. Uh, Adam Goods sought out the girl who had racially abused him and then said it's not her fault. This is about the society in which she was brought up and we can all learn lessons of it. He didn't make it about him and a spectator. He broadened the conversation to talk about racism and to take Australians a little step further further along the reconciliation journey. And likewise, the way in which Taylor Harris reacted to the online abuse was to step into the conversation, to be clear that the trolling that she was receiving was also part of the body shaming that occurs for millions of young girls across the community, and to instill in others a sense of pride and confidence in pushing back against the trolls, as, as I know you've done in your career, and show an example to others as to the way in which she could, could be a, a leader in sport and continues to be. David, do you want to jump in and respond to some of Andrew's comments? Yeah, I could, uh, sort of in a sense, accuse um, Andrew of cherry-picking <laughs> great examples from sport, um, and I suppose whatever the negative equivalent of that is lemon-picking or something, in my case. My problem, I suppose, a couple of quick responses. Since the Ian Roberts case you know, came out, how many male rugby league players have come out practising professional rugby league players? I think kind of zero. So, I mean, there are, I agree, these, you know, these key moments, but they, they often don't translate into real progress or certainly fast progress. And the second thing I would say is that in the case of, say, Adam Goods and Taylor Harris, there's a bit of a suggestion there that it's kind of down to them to deal with the problem, you know, that they, they stood up to that. But what about all, all the other people? who get monstered uh, in contemporary sport, who don't have maybe the same resources or the same will or, you know, the same capacity to be constantly abused, I mean, persistently so, after uh, the moment itself has passed. One of the things I would say is that many of the best things that have happened in sport in terms of, say, social equality, have happened despite it rather than because of it. Sports organisations have generally been lamentable at advancing gender inequality, uh, racial ethnic equality, sexual equality, and so on. Much of the pressure has actually come from the outside amongst fans. For example, the anti-racism movement in association football, as I prefer to call it, or soccer, as you might prefer. Much of that actually came from fans, not from sport itself, and in some cases from the players. So in many cases, progress has had to be advanced by knocking down the structures of sport, not building on them. One of the tensions in your two talks was about what is sport, in fact. And I'm actually in this category of 60% of people that do quite a lot of physical activity, but I'm not part of any sporting competition. So what's the distinction that you're making between sport and physical activity and why are you making that distinction? distinction. I, I think it's an important distinction. You know, In some cases, getting off the couch or out of bed you know, could could count as physical activity. <laughs> One of the reasons why the stats on sport are so unreliable and have been so consistently is people roll them together. And my point is, that, and this comes from a long engagement with the history of sport, what we today call sport is essentially a 19th century British phenomenon that emerged with uh, industrialism and urbanisation and so on and became a new institution built on the folk rituals and physical activities of the past. These things get conflated. And so often when people are talking about sport, claiming sport, people who like sport say, everyone's sporting. Australia is such a great sporting nation and so on. Now, I've presented you with some rather you know, cold-eyed stats that suggest that that's really not, not the case. And there's a lot, I suppose, of romanticism about it. And I get that. Sport is the domain of mythology. But it's the responsibility of social scientists like myself and Andrew <laughs> not to go with prevailing mythologies, but to unmask them if necessary or question them. 
Okay, so I want you to respond to that idea. Well, there's two ideas actually, really. One is about the mythologies and whether we're holding on to false hopes. But I mean, I'm interested that you do group physical activity with sport and you really put that together in your book, Fair Game, as one thing. So do you want to address those two things separately for me? Yeah, absolutely, Ginger. I mean, I think there's a continuum which goes from uh, going for a, for a run in the bush to playing professional sports. And for me, that, that sits together, the physical activity and the competitive nature are, uh, are of a piece. And I do think that we want to uh, envisage the way in which sport can have effects which spill over through society. So you look at who gets made into a statue. Well, there's Fatso the Fat-Ass Wombat. I mentioned before, Uh, but there's also uh, the Peter Norman statue. The statue for Peter Norman honours the, uh, not his 200 metre run, which still stands as the Australian record, despite having been set more than 50 years ago, but acknowledges his stand for human rights when he stood on the dais alongside John Smith and uh, Tommy Carlos and uh, wore an Olympic project for human rights badge and stood with those two social justice campaigners. Another statue which sits outside a a Melbourne sporting stadium is the, the one that shows John Landy stopping for an injured Ron Clark and checking out on whether he's okay. Now, it's an amazing moment because Landy goes on to win that mile race despite being about uh, 20 metres back by the time he gets running again when Clark says, yeah, I'm fine, run, run. But it's, we, we honour the moment that he reaches back. And so I think we want to envisage sport not only through what happens on the playing field, but the way that the very best of behaviour on the playing field can ripple out and affect all of us through the statues and the stories and the examples. So if I could just jump in very quickly there, and they're certainly, I mean, important and heartwarming and elevating cases, but every person you mentioned was a man. I've talked about the deep gender divide within sport. So I mean, a question to Andrew, I can't answer it myself. How many statues of sports women are around Australia? What would be the ratio compared to that of men? And I, I think we know the answer because there's some debate now at the moment, is there not, in Brisbane, about a Matilda statue lining up <laughs> alongside all yeah. uh, that of all the men. We still have to deal um, with those issues and I don't think we can ignore the gender divide there. Well, what I'm hearing you say in a way, David, is that the prejudices that exist in society are very much reflected in sport. So I just want to slightly change tact here because I think this is also something that was mentioned in your talk, but I just want to pick up on it a little bit. One of the things that Andrew's arguing is that on the starting line, what matters isn't athletes' wealth or connections, but their hard work. So I know that you've often argued the opposite in your work, that wealth and corporate greed is effectively a poison in sport. How do these two things sit together in your mind? And I also want to ask Andrew afterwards. Sport is a beautiful thing. But, I mean, Colin Tatt, the late Colin Tatt's once Canberra resident, wrote a piece which Geoffrey Lawrence, my colleague, and I first edited called The Corruption of Sport. So what I think is unfortunate that has happened in the world of sport is that it has... Um, kind of separated. We do have grassroots sport and all that, and I think that's very good, but it's got severed from elite sport, in particular certain sports, which, as, as I mentioned, have been kind of wildly kind of out of control. They're grasped by liberal nations involved in sports washing. They essentially turned into capitalist enterprises from formerly amateur amateur pursuits and so on. The other thing I would say, and this may may be even more unpopular, is that one of the myths about Australia is it punches above its weight in sport and so on. Mostly in that, that case, people talk about population. What they don't talk about is median income because most of the medals, you know, in the Olympics and so on, come from countries with high high median incomes or who have pumped large amounts of money, taking it off poor citizens and giving it to other citizens in order to win medals. And there have been calculations about what a gold medal 
costs in Australia. One su suggestion was about $38 million per gold medal. Some people have suggested more. So people don't want to hear this kind of thing sometimes because of all the heartwarming stories, which I also, I like to hear those stories. But I also think we have to ask those questions, how typical are they? And how, how can things be made better for most of the people engaged in sport, which in the case of the grassroots means, as I say, for my work in Greater Western Sydney, making it easier for people from low socioeconomic groups who want to be involved in sport to be able to do so. Andrew, did you want to respond to that idea about corporate greed in sport? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think uh, there is, you can certainly pull examples in which uh, assets matter, but then some of our most inspiring tales are of people who've managed to make it to the very top despite starting from modest backgrounds. Uh, you think about Cathy Freeman's career. You think about Yvonne Gulagong's career, or indeed Ash Barty's. Uh, women who, uh, Indigenous women who started from modest backgrounds and through assistance from others around them, built their careers up in truly remarkable ways. My uh, former parliamentary colleague, Nova Peris, is one of the few Australians who's represented Australia in the Olympics in two different sports. And I guess Pat Farmer's run also illustrates something too, which is that continuum between participation and elite engagement. If I could just say very quickly, because it goes straight to your portfolio, which is, you know, given that what one of your areas of responsibility is, is sort of taxation and fairness in business, why is it that multi-billion dollar enterprises in Australian sports, such as the AFL and the NRL, get tax relief? Uh, which other businesses don't get, when you're making an argument that there is something that Australian business should learn from Australian sport, well, what's that? Tax, avoidance, evasion, <laughs> not avoidance, whichever one isn't the crime, you know, is that an issue to be considered here? The issue of uh, tax concessions and sport is complicated and I think more mind-numblingly dull that's worth going into for today's debate. The settings are not perfect, but they're also not as simple as you've described. <laughs> okay, here we go. These are questions from the audience. Perhaps the real question is, should sport unite or divide us? All right, who wants to take that first? Is that really its well, role? Well, over the last generation, we've become more unequal and less engaged in a community sense. So we need something to, uh, to unite us. If sport can do the job, then that's fantastic. Uh, I think it's a bit, a bit dangerous to nominate any form of culture as kind of compulsory to like. And uh, the Marxist sociologist of art once said that the duty of art, for example, is to provoke nightmares and terror in the slumber of prosperity. And uh, so I think that um, in some ways, I see sport as a form of culture and it, it works through media culture in all kinds of other ways. And I, I think it's a little dangerous to expect sport to carry you know, that whole societal weight. I would argue that it would be preferable for sport to take its place amongst all the cultural forms, not displace some of them, as it frequently does, both in terms of media and in terms of sponsorship and so on, and to allow people to have their cultural tastes and preferences and not make sports loving compulsory. Is it useful to distinguish between community and professional sport for this question? Does community sport better represent its socially unifying potential? Andrew. Community sport is, can, can play an enormously important role. Uh, you talk to people in new migrant communities and often it's sport, which is the way in which people are plugged into the, uh, to the local community. One of the early events I ran when I got elected was with uh, heads of local sporting groups. I mentioned to one of the guys from the local AFL team that I'd heard of uh, a couple of new Sudanese migrants who'd arrived who were hoping to play but didn't have any resources. And he was like, oh, Totally fine. Yeah, we'll just waive the fees for the first year and get him, get him a uniform, send him over. And that willingness of local sporting teams 
to welcome in new arrivals, I think is uh, a mark of the best of what Australian sport can do and provides a, a way of connecting up communities. But you see it just across the country. Uh, one of the great sporting successes in a couple of decades in which sporting, sporting participation has waned a little has been parkrun. And that's partly because of its simplicity. It's always on Saturday morning, 8am, and it's always free. And that uh, simple model has drawn hundreds of people to different park runs. There's a plethora of them across Canberra. Uh, and it's provided an easy way for people to not only do a bit of physical activity, but also join up with a community. Plenty of park runners say that they go along primarily not for the uh, exercise, but for the coffee afterwards and for feeling that sense of being part of a, a shared running group. David, if you could wave a magic wand and reset society, would you wipe out organised sport? I have debates with colleagues in the field. I mean, there's a movement called No Olympics Ever anywhere, <laughs> right? And I debate with my colleagues. I don't agree, I agree with that. I think that um, I would like to see sport um, survive. I would like to see grassroots sport prosper and to recalibrate the institution of sport so that there isn't so much of a fixation on the elite level. As I say, I wouldn't destroy it. I would subject it to re-education <laughs> and reform. Let's see whether David Rowe or Andrew Lee could sway the opinion of the three judges. Ginger Gorman is first inviting Catherine Ordway to the stage, Associate Professor for Sport Management at the University of Canberra. It's a difficult case, isn't it, that they've put towards us. And my first anticipated response heading in here today was, it's very obvious, we've just come out of the Women's World Cup, that sport does unite us. The experience that, that we've just been on the roller coaster for the last month or so has been overwhelmingly positive. And we've seen people in the stands from different countries embracing all that is good about sport, embracing each other, singing different national anthems and getting on board with all kinds of different cultural experiences as we've celebrated women's sport in its finest form. I've seen that in other world championships around the world in different sports. I've seen that in the Olympic Games and I've experienced that in, in a range of different settings. So I was thinking that David wasn't going to have a hope in convincing me at all that sport was divisive. But then I reflected on what it is that I do in my day job. I'm a sports integrity social scientist. <laughs> And I like to joke that every day is a new scandal because that's what brings me joy. I look at anti-doping and match fixing and I look at ways that better inclusion, better diversity and better gender equality will lead to better sport outcomes. And I'm, I'm particularly interested in looking at how in community sport we define what is uh, sport integrity. So one of the really interesting outcomes that my colleagues and I have determined is that racism is one of the biggest issues for us here in Australia in terms of sport integrity. That's a real concern and it's been touched on by both speakers tonight and the way that we can address that to try to bring those positive values back into sport is really, really crucial. Just to wrap up, I wanted to reflect on you as the audience tonight. One of the most touching moments when we did our introductory presentation through Ginger was your response to the Afghan women's cricket team, representatives of whom are here tonight. And the way that you responded to them reminded me about what's important about sport and the way that sport can unite. The Afghan women, sporting women of all kinds, women who want to just be free and live their lives has touched all of us. And I think that's what reminds me about what's important in tonight's debate, that sport really can unite. Can I also welcome to the stage Chloe Hosking, 2018 Commonwealth Games champion, London Olympian, coming up to the podium. I guess I come from the background of professional sport and for me that was one of the biggest distinctions made and uh, when I read the question it's so hard for me to 
pull out the professional aspect of sport. So I look at it and I just see, you know, the games we watch on TV, the Olympics, the Commonwealth Games. And, um, you know, I love going for a ride on a Saturday morning, but for me, that's not my competition. So while I see the coffee shop rides that I go with and how that brings me and my friends together and the junior bunch where I try and encourage more juniors to get into cycling and to stay in cycling as they progress through and get older. I also see the barriers to them competing and knowing that cycling is a sport that does have very high entry-level barriers. You have to be of a particular social economic group to continue through the sport unless you have great support around you. So while I um, sat down here today and I declared that I was um, not leaning anyway, I was very much leaning towards Unite, but David really did sway me in a lot of his arguments. And when I consider that professional sport is about competing against other people, I then think, well, where is my real allegiance? And I guess after the talk, I think I come away with sport does divide us, but in many ways it provides a platform for people who are particularly in situations where women are, have not been treated equally all the time. It gives them a platform where that issue is amplified and spoken about and can stimulate change. But uh, it's starting from that divisive point. I hope you're all thinking very carefully about this because I'm about to ask you to raise your hands. But before we do that, Richard Holden. Richard is a professor of economics at the University of New South Wales Business School. You know, to our first speaker, I must say I related a lot, David, to the idea where you said uh, you described yourself as a one-time player of middling ability. And uh, <laughs> that would be the most generous description of me in the, the sort of sports you were talking about. On the other side, you talked about middle-class non-contact sports like tennis and golf, which are the only two things that I ever demonstrated <laughs> some level of competency at. So I wasn't quite so sure about that. Andrew, super powerful showcasing First Nations people. I was at the stadium when Kathy Freeman won her gold medal, and it's something that's just completely etched in my memory. I grew up watching Mark Glenn and Gary Ella play club rugby for Randwick and remember that from, you know, being like a five-year-old kid watching them play and being blown away and, and being lucky enough to see Ash Barty play in person during some of her triumphs. On the other hand, mate, you then went off into this thing about productivity, real wages, <laughs> inequality, no one has any friends anymore. <laughs> you know, I'm one of your people and wasn't so sure about that. And then there was the pivot to a society that values me over we, which reminded me of Adam Newman and the whole WeWork thing. And, you know, the unfortunate phrase in their public announcement documents about the power of we that lies in all of us. Um, <laughs> so I wasn't quite sure what to make of that. Maybe this all comes down to paraphrase Bill Clinton, which is always risky. What the word us means to all of us. Who is it that is the community that we're thinking about uniting or dividing? And that if sport does bring out both the best of us and the worst of us, how do we weight those things? Do we put a lot of weight on the shining moments of great national unity and personal accomplishment, or do we put a lot of weight on some of the negative things that go with that? I leave it to you. So where did you land? After hearing all the arguments, the audience at the National Library of Australia in Canberra changed tack completely, again by a show of hands, about 80% this time decided that sport divides us. There you go. Love a well-argued debate. And there's plenty of debate uniting and dividing us over the future of artificial intelligence in our lives. Now, I bring that up because Science Friction, the show I loved creating and hosting before I took on the Big Ideas gig this year, is back with a new series, Hello AI Overlords. It's hosted by tech reporter James Pertill, whose journalism I absolutely love. You can find Science Friction and the Big Ideas podcast right now on the ABC Listen app. Check it out. I'm Natasha Mitchell. I'll catch you next time. Bye.
You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.